Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by the Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 49 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Welcome to the podcast. Today, we celebrate President's Day on the podcast. Originally established in 1885 in recognition of President George Washington, the holiday became popularly known as President's Day after it was moved as part of 1971's Uniform Monday Holiday Act, an attempt to create uh, more three-day weekends uh, for the nation's workers. While several states still have individual holidays honoring the birthdays of Washington, uh, Abraham Lincoln, and other figures, President's Day is now popularly viewed as a day to celebrate all of our U.S. presidents, past and present. We're celebrating by featuring two members of our Speakers Bureau on the podcast today, Warren Greer and Sean McLaughlin. Sean is a Special Collections and Exhibit Director at Murray State University. His A book uh, is titled JFK, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, one of our presidents, not from Kentucky, but uh, still appropriate for President's Day. JFK and de Gaulle, How America and France Failed in Vietnam, 1961 to 1963. We'll hear from him later in the podcast. In Kentucky, when we think of presidents and President's Day, of course, we think of Abraham Lincoln. Warren Greer is director of the Kentucky Lincoln Heritage Trail. He has a bachelor's in history from the University of Kentucky, a master's in adult education from my alma mater, Western Kentucky University. Uh, 2005 to 2010 uh, was the program coordinator of Kentucky's Lincoln Bicentennial Commission at the Kentucky Historical Society. And 2013 to the present, as I mentioned, director of the Kentucky Lincoln Heritage Trail, and we'll talk to him a little bit about that in a few minutes. But he's also working on a a book uh, which he's uh, already titled, uh, which is Lincoln's Secret, How Old-Fashioned Virtues Propelled a Frontier Boy to the Presidency. What more fitting topic and title uh, than to have this podcast on President's Day. Warren, welcome to the program. Thank you, Bill. Happy to be here. You uh, write, and we write in our Kentucky Humanities Speakers Bureau uh, introduction to you. And by the way, uh, speakers are available to appear at any time with the drop of a Zoom at the present time. Not too many people are doing uh, live events during uh, the pandemic, but live uh, via Zoom to your uh, social clubs, uh, your church, uh, your classroom. Uh, what what better way to bring in experts uh, in their fields to talk with a group that you know of? That's our Kentucky Humanities Speakers Bureau. All the details are on our website at kyhumanities.org. So check that out. But the introduction that uh, we use in our on our website is uh, Warren's presentation explores. Lincoln's broad and complex relationship with Kentucky, including his family, antebellum perspective, the Civil War, post-war memory in Kentucky, and modern efforts to preserve his legacy. Warren, uh, welcome, first of all, uh, and thanks uh, for being here. Uh, what, what an interesting topic. Uh, Lincoln was a, 
a complicated figure um, in in his entire life. Uh, what what made him so? Well, uh, that's the big question that Lincoln Studies has uh, wanted to answer really ever since uh, his death. Um, and uh, there really is no consensus on what made Lincoln Lincoln. He's been sort of this enigma, even among specialists. Uh, just when you think you've got him sort of figured out and uh, framed one way, then uh, you go down a different direction within his life and career, and uh, it challenges that uh, that interpretation. And that's on and on and on. Um, uh, and uh, that's the, the deep mystery in his experience. What do we, in your um, explanation of that, and then in our uh, introduction to you uh, as a Speakers Bureau member, uh, I read this uh, exploring, explores Lincoln's broad and complex relationship with Kentucky, and then there are a couple other things. If you will, spend a few minutes talking about um, this broad and complex relationship. What, what makes it broad? Uh, what makes it complex? Well, it's broad in that his uh, family came here um, in the 1780s, his beginning with his grandparents. Um, so his story begins right there at the beginning of Kentucky, uh, which was founded as a state in 1792, as you know. Um, and uh, it begins there. And it's uh, his uh, grandfather was uh, killed in, uh, near Louisville by Indians, unfortunately, um, in the late 1780s. And his uh, grandmother relocated to what's now Washington County, uh, Kentucky, um, where uh, she moved with Lincoln's, uh, who would become Lincoln's father, um, Thomas, where he was raised um, and eventually married Lincoln's mother, Nancy. Uh, and uh, they moved, of course, after that over to Elizabethtown and then to what's now Hodgenville, uh, where Lincoln was born. So um, that it begins that early, that profound um, and of course, uh, Lincoln was near Kentucky, just across the river in Indiana, most of his uh, uh, developing years. Um, and of course, uh, the Civil War was that monumental event that that affected uh, Kentucky and uh, other states so profoundly. And uh, Kentucky literally being at the center of the war geographically and uh, politically and right in between slave and free states, um, just that that relationship really grew uh, even more complex, and uh, especially in, in the way that Kentuckians regarded Lincoln at that time, the way they regarded the Union at that time, and, and, and also what happened afterwards. Uh, Kentucky was pretty pro-Union before the war, uh, based largely on Henry Clay's leadership and others that really just cherished the American nation and, and uh, uh, its experience uh, uh, with democracy and, and something that was new to the world. Um, and uh, the Civil War challenged that, of course. Uh, Kentuckians uh, uh, gradually throughout the course of the war really kind of changed their sentiments, especially after slavery was abolished with the 13th Amendment. And they weren't very happy with Abraham Lincoln uh, after that. And um, uh, the, the next several decades, even into the, the 20th century, uh, really showed this this metamorphosis of Kentucky almost into a Confederate state, which it had not been um, in terms of its identity and the way it sort of remembered the war. 
um, and, and also the way that it appreciated Abraham Lincoln or did not appreciate Abraham Lincoln and the way that it held up Confederate heroes. And uh, that evolution has really just taken us all the way till today where uh, with the, the Lincoln Trail and with other efforts to commemorate uh, his uh, memory and legacy like never before, that's really sort of still new today. And of course, we know that the Confederate legacy is, um, I think, sort of descending. And that's been um, a gradual uh, but remarkable thing. You know, I've never uh, asked this. I've never thought about it until this very moment. Uh, and that is, we uh, uh, in Kentucky, uh, someone, and I don't even know the date, uh, although I've been there several times, the Jefferson Davis uh, Memorial uh, down in western Kentucky. Uh, fascinating, interesting, very controversial today. Uh, of course, there are remembrances of statues uh, uh, of, of Abraham Lincoln all over the state of Kentucky, but nothing as uh, monument in, in, in size or, or stature um, as, as the Jefferson Davis Memorial. Was, was that part of what you're speaking about, that, that um, someone like Jefferson Davis and, and other, um, uh, others who fought for the Confederacy suddenly had a, a change of heart and not because of Lincoln? I mean, was Lincoln the reason that some of that took place um, after uh, the, the war and after his assassination? Yes, very much so. I mean, Lincoln was more or less a villain for most Kentuckians um, uh, after the Civil War, during Reconstruction, well into the 20th century, uh, whereas the Confederate heroes like Davis and Braxton Bragg and and others were uh, elevated to um, hero status. So, and it also took place in the context of, um, you know, racial injustice and um, oppression where um, not just Kentucky, but the entire nation, of course, went through a, a time, uh, you know, early 20th century, for example, that was highly racist. And that's when a lot of these monuments to Confederates were going up. Um, and uh, they went up literally all over Kentucky, dozens of them. Um, just, uh, you know, glorifying that past. And uh, it's captured really remarkably by a very uh, a talented historian named Ann Marshall, who uh, is, hails from Lexington, if you remember her. Um, and she wrote a book called Creating a Confederate Kentucky. Um, and a powerful, powerful title there that really speaks to this change, this this evolution of the way Kentuckians felt about the Union or remember the Civil War, the way they felt about Abraham Lincoln and the way they felt about those other uh, Confederate heroes. Uh, and it really did create this um, this glorification of the of the South. Um, and yes, if if George Washington, the founder of his country, needed uh, needed an obelisk in Washington, D.C., then, of course, Jefferson Davis also needed a 300 foot obelisk right at his at his birthplace in Kentucky. And uh, yes, powerful, powerful uh, reminder of, of this uh, historical memory. What do we know today? What does your research tell you about um, what has not been accurately reported or uh, evidence with with uh, fact uh, uh, underlined by deep research by historical facts? Because for a long time, you tell me if I'm wrong about this. Uh, studying Abraham Lincoln, learning of Abraham Lincoln as a uh, in school um 
he was glorified and 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 lifted up to a great deal. And it, it seems like in the last I don't know how long, um, fifty years, uh, twenty five years or so, uh, there have been historians who've said, uh, yes, he was a great man, our greatest president, but. Uh, a lot of what we were led to believe and thought and, and learned in school, there was another part of the story. Is is that true? Sure. I mean, he was glorified um, after his assassination uh, to such a high degree by Americans. He really uh, became an icon. Um, and, uh, of course, uh, he probably never would have wanted to or attempted to live up to what uh, his legend became. Um but yes, his his uh, his history is, is much more complex than the the man who quote unquote emancipated the slaves. Um, you know, first off, he was a centrist in his politics. Uh, he was not an abolitionist, um, and uh, so many people today would fault him for not being as aggressive on say the, the issue of slavery as he might have been. Um, on the other hand, he was uh, anti-slavery um, and did everything in his power to confront the institution. Um, the way he did that was walking, uh, navigating the political center in a way that is really uh, quite remarkable and shows uh, what some call his political genius um, and, and, and ultimately, of course, helped bring the end of that institution. Along the way, of course, um, you know, he was not a model crusader uh, that some might want to see against racial injustice. And other things uh, today, people are... Um, uh, looking, re-examining his uh, Indian policies, uh, which uh, in the context of his day were were pretty lenient, uh, in the context of today, uh, perhaps brutal in some people's minds. So uh, there's enough good there to uh, applaud and celebrate in Lincoln, and there's other things to question and, and wonder, uh, is he somebody that has been placed too high on a pedestal? What do we know about his relationship with with Henry Clay, or at least what he tried to emulate from from what Clay was doing. Uh, and tell me what we also know about his um, uh, uh, fondness was is the wrong word. Uh, his uh, his study of and and for a while support of sending uh, the enslaved uh, to Liberia, which Today seems shocking to most that are hearing it for the first time, but but Lincoln was uh, a part of that for a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, uh, first with Henry Clay, um, you know, it's it's hard to overstate how much he idolized Clay um, in terms of his uh, uh, political astuteness, his um, um, his love of America, his love of of the Union, um, his uh, uh, views in terms of advancing the economy through internal improvements, his views on slavery, um, wanting it to see it ultimately come to an end. Um, and uh, yeah, it was uh, a difficult balancing act for both Clay and Lincoln to uh, do what they felt was morally right in the context of the time they were living in. Clay, of course, owned slaves himself. Um, and I, if I remember correctly, they both were in favor of co- what was called colonization. Um, which was sort of finding a place for uh, freed slaves to go outside of America. It was very controversial at the time, still controversial today. And uh, Lincoln was more or less a proponent of it at certain times, um, uh, mostly for uh, political purposes, uh, but also because he uh, 
did hold, we think, some racist views. Um, There's a famous uh, uh, account of a meeting um, between African-American ministers who had come to Washington, D.C. during the war to meet with Lincoln. And uh, the purpose that they were there for um, uh, was Lincoln had wanted the meeting with them. He wanted them to actually back colonization. Um, it was, and, and he needed that basically in, in, a, in the larger political context of getting other initiatives um, passed or, uh, for example, uh, the Emancipation Proclamation, making those things palatable uh, for a very racist society and saying, oh, by the way, we're doing colonization was one of his political tools to, to sort of normalize some of his other ambitions, right? And in that meeting, Lincoln said some very unfortunate things that um, – that really hurt those individuals and, and do not uh, uh, stand well for his legacy um, in terms of, of racial inequality. Basically, he tried to make the case that um, black people were not uh, equal to whites and therefore they those ministers should have supported colonization and that, that kind of thing. Um, we don't know if, if that uh, represented Lincoln's true feelings or he was trying so hard to um, get what he needed to advance his broader agenda. But uh, regardless, uh, it, it's it's part of his, his history. Uh, we've been uh, talking with Warren Greer uh, about Lincoln. Uh, Warren is one of our uh, members of our Speakers Bureau, and uh, we're, we're very proud to promote him throughout the state. Um, he is available to talk with your with your group. Um, he also um, will uh, talk about uh, his day job, uh, director of the Kentucky Lincoln Heritage Trail. Um, and uh, Warren, just uh, in, in a, uh, a few minutes, tell us, uh, tell us about your, your work today and uh, the, the Lincoln Heritage Trail, if you would, please. Sure. Um, it, it really goes back to that relationship with Kentucky um, and that's ev- that evolution um, we sort of consider ourselves as having reclaimed Lincoln for Kentucky, or perhaps claimed it for the first time. Um, back about oh, 20 years ago or so now, um, you know, the Lincoln Bicentennial was looming, his 200th birthday, and, and that was getting a lot of, of um, awareness and, and uh, really play uh, in, the, in the national news media and just awareness sort of in a way that you don't usually see with history. And that's, that's been a, something with Lincoln. He really is, is um, right there at the forefront of public thought. And in Kentucky, people saw that as a way to say, hey, you know what? We have never really paid much attention to this history in terms of honoring it and cherishing it and fully researching it even and putting it on display. Um, so uh, we began then with the um, the bicentennial and, and uh, were able to achieve some major state investments and a, a two year celebration that that really strengthened our heritage in terms of uh, public presentations, museum exhibits, um, new public art, um, plays and, and music and things. And we also at that time created the Kentucky Lincoln Heritage Trail, which um uh, is is a driving tour where people can uh, visit his birthplace or visit the home of his wife Mary Todd in Lexington or his best friend in um, Louisville Farmington um, where Joshua Speed lived, um, and uh, it was a neat legacy that actually began in the 1960s that we sort of reclaimed here uh, during the 60s. The the Lincoln Trail actually went through all three states: Indiana, um, Illinois, and Kentucky. It was a pretty big deal uh, during that time, and that trail eventually faded. And uh, so we got going back here in Kentucky and formed a partnership uh, of people that said we really want to cherish this man. 
And Kentucky, uh, we think, has got behind it and, and, and finally understood the, the greatness of Abraham Lincoln with his complexity, with his uh, foibles and um, unfortunate parts. Uh, and that's what we're doing today. Well, Warren, uh, when you say that's what we're doing today, what exactly are you doing today? Uh, of course, during the pandemic and during COVID, I know that uh, a lot of things have have changed uh, and, and you're as anxious as everybody else to get out and, and travel again. Are you suggesting one of the things that, that uh, when we are able to feel more comfortable um, uh, about getting out in public again, uh, let's hope that soon, we all pray. Um, do you uh, feel uh, that the, the encouragement that uh, the, as director of the, of the group, you, you want people to, to travel the Lincoln Trail? Well, uh, that's a great question. Of course, we're right on the cusp, hopefully, of, of uh, turning the corner on this pandemic with vaccinations and things. And, and yes, our member sites are, are really uh, chomping at the bit to reopen uh, in some sense of normalcy. Um, I just talked to one of our members yesterday whose uh, docents were being vaccinated and they were looking forward to, to uh, passing some additional thresholds towards safe operations. Uh, but yeah, we expect uh, this summer tourism season to be much, much improved from last year, and um, uh, and and hopefully we can get back to some of the big public events that we've enjoyed: the Lincoln Days Festival in Hodgenville, um, Camp Nelson Civil War Days, and there's also in October a wonderful event's going to happen at the Lincoln Boyhood Home at Knob Creek. Uh, the reopening of that site with a, a fully renovated uh, tavern. There, a multi-million-dollar renovation um, done by the National Park Service, and we hope that that's event an event that looks much more like the things we have been used to prior to the the pandemic. Warren, a final question, um, and you, I'm put you on the spot, but I'm sure you know the answer. How many Lincoln? How many places in Kentucky uh, with Lincoln's name attached to it, can can uh, can people visit uh, in in the Commonwealth? Well, on our trail, we feature over twenty sites. Wow. Okay. There you go. Uh huh. And some of those can be a, a Civil War site, for example. So the Jefferson Davis Monument you mentioned, that's a state park, um, is actually on our trail um, because it tells that story of his adversary, who was also born in Kentucky. Um, but mostly, uh, you know, we, uh, we, we interpret his life and, and history and legacy. Camp Nelson, for example, is a great one. One of the uh, few places where African-American um, slaves uh, joined the Union Army and, and gained their freedom. That has just become a National Park Service site. So um, it's, it would take a few days if, it, if everybody wanted to visit all of the sites or somebody wanted to visit all of the sites. Uh, but it is a, a wonderful driving tour. We hope people will um, will reengage with. Is all of that on your website? Sure is. Boy, I tell you what, I've been to many of them, but I don't think I've been to all twenty, and I certainly haven't done it in a span of two or three, four days. What a what a wonderful way to spend a vacation, a, a staycation uh, in Kentucky. Um, I, I just think that's a wonderful idea, and I hope people. Uh, take you up on it. Um, once again, uh, Warren, thanks so much uh, for being our guest. Uh, we we are glad that you're out there representing uh, the Heritage Trail and Kentucky Humanities, and we hope that people take advantage of your scholarship and your expertise uh, down the road. So thank you very much for being here. From uh, Abraham Lincoln to John F. Kennedy, next up on Think Humanities Podcast, right after this word, from our friends at Spalding University. 
the Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing offers students intellectual rigor, emotional support, affordability, flexibility, and community at the world's first certified compassionate university. From certificate to terminal degree, the programs at Spalding School of Writing foster lifelong writing habits and help you forge a lasting writing community. Learn more at spalding.edu slash school of writing or email school of writing at spalding.edu. Jeff McLaughlin joins us now. He is the Museum Archive Director at Murray State University and another member of our Speakers Bureau. Uh, As mentioned earlier in the podcast, we are celebrating President's Day by featuring two of our Speakers Bureau members. Uh, You just heard Warren Greer on Lincoln. Uh, Jeff is uh, interesting. We're going to uh, bring forward the uh, the time clock uh, just a bit and and talk about uh, John F. Kennedy um, and uh, his scholarship and research uh, is uh, frankly uh, fascinating and I hope that you will look on our website at kyhumanities.org and uh, look at our speakers bureau members. Um, uh, Jeff is listed there and. Uh, he is available, uh, as all of our speakers are at this point, even during COVID, to zoom in to your uh, event, your social event, your uh, club, uh, your church organization, uh, your classroom, and, and talk about these two areas that he has uh, deeply researched and uh, written uh, a book about on one of them. So, uh, Jeff, uh, let me just tell everybody uh, that your your book JFK and De Gaulle how America and France failed in Vietnam 1961 to 1963 is um written up as a new explanation for the great american tragedy in Vietnam and your other uh talk is on uh, something that people may or may not remember i do um i was there um but that is when john f kennedy uh, many many years ago now um uh, was in the uh, fight for his life for the presidency and visited Kentucky and visited uh, uh, cities that we're all familiar with. And uh, so I'm, I'm anxious to hear uh, about his research and the work that he did uh, when John Kennedy visited Kentucky in the, during the 1960 presidential campaign against uh, President, uh, against Richard Nixon, not president yet, but uh, later. So, uh, Jeff, thanks a lot for joining us. Oh, uh- I'm so glad to be here, and, and thanks for for getting me on. It's uh, we've all been cooped up, and I, I feel like this is a pretty good substitute for being in front of a room full of people. Yeah, well, we we uh, we hope you'll uh, help us as we do spread the word through social media and other means uh, that people will will hear us chat. And you know, I am going to let you go uh, first and talk about either one of these two talks. Uh, I'm I'm really quite fascinated by both of them. Uh, and I mean that. And uh, it, it took me back, uh, as um, often happens, uh, to some history that I remember quite well. But I'll let you choose. Do you want to talk about Kentucky or do you want to talk about France? Well, uh, we, we it's, it's three months in the rear view, but it kind of still feels like we're dealing with uh, election aftermath stuff here in, in America today. So maybe let's talk about the election first. So um, when I came down to Murray with my wife in uh, 2016, um, uh, the first, uh, I, I'm a historian by training, and, and I taught history back in Canada and Wisconsin before we, we moved here. And um, that 
probably would have been the most natural thing for me to do here. Uh, however, um, the libraries contacted me and um, they said, um, we uh, have this kind of blank canvas in the museum, all these empty galleries that, that need something new. Would you like to design an exhibit for us? And because I had been doing research on Kennedy, I went to the archives and I started poking around in their collections and uh, they've got like massive holdings on all like the most powerful Democratic Party shot colors in the western part of the state. And um, I started looking through this stuff and there's all this like campaign badges and stickers and the kind of like the, uh, the goofy hats that people used to wear, like the white hats with the, with the white brim around. And I just thought like, oh, and the photography as well. And I, I just thought, you know what, um, we've got all of the makings for like a really terrific exhibit on um, on uh, Kennedy's campaign visits to Kentucky in, in 1960. So this is what I want to do. The stuff here justifies it. So let's rock and roll. Mm -hmm. um, and I also, uh, I traveled to the special collections at Western uh, Kentucky University. Um, my uh, friend and colleague there, Jonathan Jeffrey, uh, helped me find a bunch of really cool stuff. Uh, in their collections, because Kennedy, uh, he, he made his way to Paducah, not to Murray. Uh, and he, he did do like, kind of like a full day's worth of events in Bowling Green. And so at WKU, they got all this uh, fantastic amateur photography. Uh, they got oral history interviews. Uh, some of it is quite hilarious. Um, there was a moment when uh, Kennedy was like a, a local uh, auto dealer, got a convertible for JFK. Uh, they put him in the car with uh, Miss Kentucky, and then uh, it was uh, like do a victory lap around the city while everybody waves at you and just kind of make small talk with, with Miss Kentucky. And so after the fact, they got an oral history with her, and she kind of admitted, uh, you know, I politely had to, uh, you know, just make conversation with this future president. But like <laughs> when it was all done, I voted Republican, so uh, <laughs> it didn't really sway me any any way or the other. Along with a lot of other people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, certainly. Oh, yeah. The stop, the staff in Bowling Green didn't do anything. He still lost Warren County, but um, there was a lot of enthusiasm. So I think um, there are a couple, you know, big themes to this. Like, what what is the important takeaway? Um, I mean, we want to be a country where you kids are told, you know, you can all someday be president. If you if you work hard and you apply yourself, and we want to believe that we we want to believe that there's nothing about our identity that we're born with that disqualifies us from that that office. And I know that uh, being a religious minority in the mid 20th century is does not kind of put you in the category of the the most disadvantaged people in the United States. However, I think if Americans don't elect a Catholic president in 1960, we don't get to the point where we can talk about electing a black president in 2008 and then you know in 2028 electing Sarah Huckabee Sanders as the first female president of the United States or, or whomever might have that honor somewhere down the line so um, I do think it's an important milestone I think uh, I, I mean incrementally you have to move in steps and I, I, I do think this election in 1960 is uh, important and uh, so Kentuckians are in a bind right because Kentucky is not exactly the solid South. It's not like you can just put up any Democratic candidate and win the state. Kentuckians will sometimes go for like weightier Republican candidates like like Eisenhower. Kentuckians liked Eisenhower. Uh, they liked uh, Hoover, who was substantial before he became president. But it's reliably Democratic. 
it's it's kind of like there for the taking by the Democratic candidate, but the state ultimately goes for Richard Nixon. And I think everybody at the time understood that the big handicap that JFK had was, you know, it was something he was born with. It was the fact that he was a, a Catholic in a state that was mostly Protestant, and there was a lot of distrust about whether a Catholic could could be a loyal president of the United States. I think your um, that uh, part of your research. Uh, is so valuable to uh, so many Kentuckians because uh, a, a certain generation has grown up, uh, uh, certainly younger uh, generation, has grown up with thinking that uh, Kentucky was always Republican uh, and uh, w- was always conservative. And uh, there are many people uh, that will quickly uh, – uh, certainly older uh, people who know their history will uh, immediately correct that notion uh, that at one time, uh, just take one region of the of the state, uh, the western part of the state n- was solidly uh, Democrat. And uh, that, that has changed. Uh, uh, starting a few years after Kennedy made his visit to Kentucky, but still... Um, I mean, I'm going to, I, I don't know this uh, as fact, but you may, that after Nixon won Kentucky in in 60, uh, there were, I mean, excuse me, uh, after uh, Nixon uh, did capture the presidency, uh, there were many occasions when Democrats were still being elected and uh, representing Kentucky uh, in, in Congress. Um, and in Bowling Green, for example, uh, and, and I'm, I guess uh, William Natcher was uh, the, the congressman from Bowling Green. Was he uh, in, in office in 1960? I, I don't, I, I'll bet he was. Yeah, we, we can check on that. But I think kind of the, the way to keep it simple is uh, uh, Kentucky, like a, at the presidential level, Kentucky would flirt with Republicans from time to time. And now it's reversed and Kentucky flirts with Democrats, yeah. provided that um, it's a candidate, a Democratic candidate with, from a neighboring state. Mm-hmm. If you have a Southern accent, if you're Jimmy Carter, mm-hmm. if you're Bill Clinton, you have a fighting chance to win Kentucky, or at least you did mm-hmm. you know, 20, 30, 40 years mm-hmm. ago. Uh, what, we haven't really put that to the test recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's that's kind of where we are now. So the roles have reversed. Jeff, um, I remember... Uh, not well. I don't remember the exact words, but I was in uh, a, a Baptist church in Glasgow, Kentucky, near Bowling Green in 1960, and remember pretty distinctly the uh, the minister, uh, the preacher, preaching against uh, uh, John F. Kennedy. And uh, it was uh, his sermon that day, and it was not. Uh, it was not, and it was only one day. But it was clearly that uh, you need to vote for Nixon. You need to support Nixon, and, and not a Catholic. And it wasn't so much against John Kennedy, his character, or whatever. It was re- his religion, and I'm sure that happened across the state of Kentucky. Yes. And uh, I'm glad that, you know, you were there and you can provide anecdotal evidence of that. That happened all over the state. Um, and in WKU uh, Special Collections, they you, you can look at a pamphlet from a, a Baptist church in Louisville where, you know, four pages of arguments why a Catholic would be no good as, as president. And 
Um, so the Democrats nominated a Catholic for president in 1928, Al Smith, and he was governor of New York, had a pretty solid progressive track record. He was like a, a good candidate. And he absolutely got trounced because of religious bigotry. And the uh, argument that was made is that if you're a Catholic, your, loyal, your ultimate loyalties are to the Pope in Rome. And those will supersede your uh, obligations to the Constitution of the United States. And uh, there were like all these crazy rumors that circulated that uh, if Smith won, uh, he was going to build a tunnel between Washington, D.C. and the Vatican so he could get his orders from the Pope quicker. And uh, if you just think about that as a as a job creating infrastructure project, uh, American unemployment would have been you know zero for a decade. But Kennedy's got. Um, uh, a Norman Vincent Peale, uh, the you know power of positive thinking guy, he's lined up against him. Billy Graham's lined up against him. Uh, there are all these major, like all of the most important Protestant religious figures in the United States are lined up against him. And then in small towns in Kentucky, you've got you know pastors who are you know have a captive audience every week who are just saying like, no, this guy's disqualified based on uh, on the faith test. And there's there's a quote from uh, Jackie Kennedy, and she just uh, my paraphrase here is uh, she's like it's kind of ironic that people held his Catholicism against him because uh, John was such a terrible Catholic. Um, but uh, it's a it's it's a it's a handicap, and the, so the way Kennedy tries to deal with it, um, and the way he dealt with it successfully in West Virginia, where he, uh, he, he won the, he was trailing badly in the primary. And because West Virginia is one of the most, you know, Protestant states in, in the U.S. And he, he went to West Virginia and he pressed the flesh and he, he listened to people. And then he started talking about specific policies that would help people in Appalachia. Like this is a guy you know, he and Nixon both care about American foreign policy and saving the world in the Cold War. That's their their priority. But uh, Kennedy was a little bit better on the campaign of like getting down in the weeds about the nuts and bolts about changing the lives of regular people. So, uh, you know, he said he 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 wins over evangelicals in West Virginia. Um, in Eastern Kentucky, voters are, are receptive to those pocketbook issues in a way that um, maybe farmers in the central and western part of the state aren't so much. And I, I mean, one of the great moments in the campaign, uh, Kennedy goes down to Houston and he uh, he basically gives a speech in front of uh, all of these um, uh, Protestant ministers and leaders who have been denouncing him fiercely. And he, he just says straight up, I'm not the Catholic president of the United States. You know, it's one of the the fundamental founding principles of this country is freedom of religion. And then he delivers this this killer line where, you know, he talks about his brother, his older brother, who was a, a pilot, United States Army Air Force, World War II, uh, killed in action uh, over the English Channel. And he just said, "Look, my brother gave his life for this country, and he was he was fighting for an America that allowed people of all faiths to, you know, advance as far as their talents would take it." Great, like, great point. It sways some people, but that the wall of bigotry is just like in the end too big for him to overcome. What was his um, message uh, in the three stops in Kentucky that might have 
I, I don't think the uh, reference was ever made of his Catholicism uh, per se. Yeah. Um, so, and that's question one. Uh, question two is, uh, does your research show why he chose Louisville, Bowling Green, and Paducah and not Eastern Kentucky? All of those things were calculated and planned. And um, why didn't he make a, a, a stronger, why didn't his people make a stronger effort uh, to go to Appalachia? Okay. Well, um, at the outset, so the like nationwide polls are razor thin for most of 1960. It's like one, two points separating Nixon and Kennedy throughout the summer. Uh, and the fact that Kennedy, like all elections are stressful. Uh, all of them are tight to an extent. But I think the fact, like every state matters. Kentucky was going to matter. Kennedy knew it mattered and he wanted to invest heavily in here. And I think the fact that, you know, the the clock is ticking. The last month of the campaign, he spends three days in Kentucky. I think that just shows how badly he wanted the state. But he should have won, in in my opinion. And you look at the way he engaged with people in Kentucky versus the way Nixon did. You're wondering, like, well, why didn't they like this guy more? Because um, I've got, I've actually got the, the transcript of uh, Nixon's speech in Louisville up in front of me, and it's just like, I'm a candidate. I've been to other states. Some people have funny accents. Some people have normal ones. And then uh, 80% of the speech is Khrushchev, Cold War, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Things that uh, are, like, are important, but no, no advisor would tell a candidate to go meet with voters and just talk about foreign policy for 45 minutes, right? Like it was a bad speech. Now, so when Kennedy comes here, uh, he goes to Louisville. That's where kind of there's infrastructure, there's money. He can get a super big crowd there. Uh, he goes to Bowling Green, and he also makes a, a stop at Paducah, which is uh, it's more like a, the plane's refueling. I'm going to get out. I'm going to do like a whistle stop speech here, and then we're going to get off to the next. But Kennedy, um, he talked about ag prices. He talked about like life on the farm, and he talked about making life better for regular people. Uh, and he did that because it worked in the primary in West Virginia, and it kind of should have worked again, but it really didn't. Now, uh, your question about Appalachia, um, my sis I'm just going to throw this out there. I don't know if this is accurate or not, but I, I suspect that a lot of uh, a lot of uh, communities out in eastern Kentucky probably would have been picking up their TV signals from West Virginia, hmm. and some of the advertising that he done there he done there might have carried over. Yeah, that, that's so, a that's a pretty good speculation. I'm just thinking back uh, about the first television set that we had, and and uh, and and they were around uh, in the late '50s or uh, you know early '60s. So the possibility, the signal, yeah, I, I think that could have happened. Yeah, that's a good thought. Yeah, yeah. we'll have to look at that. Um, la last question on Kennedy uh, on Kennedy in Kentucky, and then we'll switch uh, uh, continents. Um, I think everyone knows uh, that uh, President Biden is only the second Catholic uh, elected. Uh, I believe I'm correct about that uh, to to the presidency. Are, are there any, uh, as you've observed uh, the last uh, the, the campaign, uh, which Biden ran, are there any parallels at all about 
the message or or religion or criticism of uh we know where the evangelical vote went um for the most part um uh, in uh 2020 um so uh, have you thought about read about uh studied uh any parallels between Kennedy in in 60 and Joseph Biden in 20 yeah um my my thought on Biden is uh you know he he leads with faith um in a way that kind of sets him apart from some recent democrat candidates and um but he's kind of got this omnibus inspirational view of it where it's a it's a it's a tool to carry you through hardship and um I think there are people who like have never set foot in a church in their life and are are not at all put off by the way he frames faith. Um, and I find it, he's been very effective. I would just say he's been very effective in um, packaging faith. Probably that's not the best way to put it, but he's he's been very effective at presenting his faith in a way that is not particularly off-putting to people of other faiths. He just talks in like universalisms um in a way that i think is quite striking but we're we're now at the point where it's there's kind of like a, a, a you know catholics and evangelicals they they partner together on a lot of things now they they don't necessarily see each other as separate rival camps anymore and that's something that's been changing you know mm-hmm. over the past decade so yeah uh jeff if you will uh share with us uh your thoughts uh let me just reset here and and tell everyone that uh, this is jeff McLaughlin who uh, is down in Murray, Kentucky, uh, director of the uh, museum there at Murray uh, State University, and uh, has two talks uh, that he gives uh, through our Speakers Bureau at Kentucky Humanities um, uh, invitation to you the, to, to, to uh, book him for your events and your talks in classrooms or churches or wherever it might be. Uh, we've talked about uh, his work and, and his scholarship on uh, Kennedy, uh, John F. Kennedy in 1960. Um, We're going to now talk about uh, from 61 to 63 and this connection that that Jeff is going to make for us between JFK and de Gaulle. And it uh, may take some some thought, uh, remembering, I guess, uh, of uh, what we were faced with uh, as a nation and and how de, uh, Charles de Gaulle in France uh, figures into this. So how did you happen to think that this would be something that uh, you'd be interested in and therefore uh, we all can be interested in through your through your talk? Yeah. Um, okay. So, you know, the, the present shapes the way we look at the past and it's, it, it kind of presents questions about the past to us. So back in the winter of uh, 2002, 2003, I was living in Poland and I had um, like a 19 inch TV and I, all, all I had was BBC World News. So I was just fixated on the run up to the second Iraq war. And, uh, you know, Jacques Chirac, who was then the president of France, uh, was kind of the most vocal opponent of the Bush administration's slide to war on like a very flimsy pretext. And uh, he's kind of like a poor man's Charles de Gaulle, I think, even in his own admission. He was, you know, a Gaullist deputy when he he started out. But it just kind of uh, raised a, a, a flag to me. I was like, wait a minute, haven't I read something about this before? And then I, it just mm-hmm. it occurred to me like in a grad module or whatever, it, it, 
I had seen something about de Gaulle trying to engage with Kennedy about Vietnam. And then, you know, flash forward three years later, I'm in a grad program and I started looking into it. Uh, there was really nothing good written on it. And so I just started exploring this topic of uh, how did the French try and dissuade the Kennedy administration from going to war in Vietnam? So why, why does France's opinion matter? Well, France is the former colonial power. France had been in country for nearly a century. Uh, and France had been there, fought that. They'd gone into the jungle. They'd, they'd fought Vietnamese nationalists. They'd lost. And they fought with hard men and tanks and armored personnel carriers and helicopters and uh it wasn't like they were doing it the wrong way. It was just the wrong war. And de Gaulle himself, he was the one who sent the French expeditionary force over in 1946. Like he owned that failure. There was an opportunity to him to sit down and negotiate with uh, Ho Chi Minh and, and others and, and kind of hash it out like gentlemen. And he passed and he felt guilty about it. And he had done over the subsequent 15 years, he'd kind of done an about face and, and just was so when he approached Kennedy, uh, he was very much trying to help the United States avoid making the same mistake that France had. And there, I guess, I mean, what, what's, why didn't America listen? That's, I mean, that's for me, that's the fundamental question. Mm -hmm. uh, because I, I mean, if you don't trust it, well, maybe not trust isn't the right word. If you can't listen to the advice from your friends in Britain, in France and Canada and Australia and maybe West Germany, like who are you listening to? Who is kind of tapping you on the shoulder when you're about to do something that might be inadvisable? But you explore in your book uh, the reason and, uh, or yeah. one of the reasons uh, personally, uh, the prejudice that, uh, that Kennedy, uh, maybe it wasn't so much public at the time. It, I guess it turned out to be war strategy or, or uh, people were criticizing him for, for that uh, but it was it was much more than that, as as you've written about. Yeah, I, I won't get into dense gender theory and foreign relations and Frank Castiglione, all of but uh, I mean, go read his stuff. He is like, you know, he is he is my mm -hmm. idol uh, mm -hmm. at UConn, Frank Castiglione. Mm -hmm. But um, so the case I make is that uh, Kennedy was deeply Francophobic, and. A part of that is because he was an Anglophile and kind of Anglophilia and Francophobia are two sides of the same coin. And, uh, you know, he's when he's in Boston as a kid, he's considered Irish. Right. And then when he goes to England in the late 30s, when his dad becomes ambassador, he's just treated as an American and he's rubbing elbows with all these other rich elites. And he's like, wow, these people get me. I mean, this is a great country. I, I love England. So um, stuff I found when I was doing research at the Kennedy Library. Um, so Kennedy is an undergrad at Harvard. Uh, he's, uh, he's got a job uh, working at the American Embassy in, in London, thanks to his dad. Uh, he and his buddy, Lemoyne Billings, they decide, you know what, summer vacation, let's go on a road trip, a drive around France. And so he's got this like 20, 30 page uh, travel diary uh, written when he's he's 20 years old. I mean, you and I have both said embarrassing things when we were 20. Maybe maybe not. Written them down. So at every stop, it's a uh, direct quote from the diary. The French are cabbage-breathed peasants. Uh, they're prudes. They rip off Americans. The country is not impressive. All these great cathedrals are just kind of overrated. 
And, really? Um, wow. So he, 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 you kind of ask yourself, why would you go to a holiday, go on holiday to a country if you already decided you didn't like the people? But I think like the killer line is uh, at the end of the diary, he crosses over into Italy. And I think the first line in that entry is like, wow, Italians are so much more better looking than the French. <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah, he, he was like deeply, deeply Francophobic. And uh, so the diary was like just a terrific find. I mean, it's a kind of a window into somebody's views. And so I make an argument that Kennedy had a racial hierarchy of the world. And at the top, there are the Brits. Then below them are the Latins, like the French. They can't be trusted, and he projects all these stereotypes on on the French as uh, uh, as a feminine people who are flighty, uh, backbiting, all of these things. And so I work from the diary, move forward, and then you go see um, other cool stuff I found in Boston. Like uh, like uh, he would take notes while he was reading a book, and then write like snarky things in, in the margins. Mm-hmm. And then you see it kind of filter through um, in speeches he gave in Congress in the 50s. And so my position is, I take this evidence, all this circumstantial evidence, and my position is is that uh, JFK became president in 1961, took office, and he had already made up his mind 20 years earlier that uh, he just wasn't going to take any advice from France. Even if it was, you know, try the soul, it's delicious. He wasn't going to listen to anything that came from any French leader, which may or may not have had consequences for the United States, but we're kind of on the, he's inherited this hot potato that is Vietnam, and he's kind of on the precipice of making really big monumental decisions that are going to affect the lives of tens of thousands of Americans and millions of Southeast Asians. He got a playbook for an exit from De Gaulle. And basically just threw it in the garbage. Mm-hmm. So that, that's basically yeah. the substance of the book. Well, Jeff, uh, fascinating, really. Uh, I, a lot of what uh, we didn't at the time learn in our history books, or I, I, I don't know how much it was discussed. It, was the... Um, was the diary ever well, well after his death though I, I don't know it would take him some time. Was that ever uh, publicly used uh, against him while he was uh, running for office or or uh... this is um, this is something that uh, made its way into the collections of the presidential library. I don't think anyone but him would have seen this hmm. until X yeah. number of years after he passed. And maybe but that wouldn't have even been a factor. I, I don't know. I, it, it depends on how people interpreted it, I guess. So timing is key, right? Because uh, I traveled to Boston, uh, what was it, 2007? Spent a wonderful spring there. And then it seemed like a year or two later, they digitized everything in their collection. So anybody in the world can now get that diary. But I just happened to be the first one to stumble on it and decide that it was a super big deal. Yeah. As part of this bigger question about Vietnam. Yeah. So it's, well, it's out there. Jeff uh, uh, is, uh, as I said before, a member of our Speakers Bureau. He's at Murray State University, but uh, thanks to, to Zoom or Skype, uh, is available to all of you anywhere to uh, talk about uh, JFK and uh, his uh, thoughts and scholarship and research and his book on uh, either JFK in Kentucky or JFK in De Gaulle or both, um, depending on time limits. So, uh, Jeff, uh, thanks so much for joining us today from uh, West Kentucky. And thanks also to Warren Greer, who was on with us earlier uh, to help us celebrate our President's Day podcast. 
Uh, we appreciate you being with us. Thanks so much, Bill. Have a great day. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 49 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.